Welcome to the Pit Stop, your monthly tune-up with refining experts. As usual, I'm Doug Aswell, your host, and I have a new co-host, Kevin Bockwinkle, and I want to give Kevin a chance to introduce himself. Kevin, uh, it's nice to have you with us. Uh, you're based out of the Kansas City office, right? Hi, Doug. I'm in our, our Overland Park, Kansas office. It is a suburb of Kansas City. Yep. I'm the, uh, the global business manager for our isotherming hydroprocessing uh, and our strat calculation technology. Been with the businesses here for just, uh, I just celebrated my 20 year anniversary last month. So been here awesome. quite a while. Uh, happy to be here. Happy to co-host. Appreciative of, of the time, Doug. Uh, thanks for yeah, inviting absolutely. me. Yeah, it's great to have you with us too, Kevin. And uh, and we hope you've been enjoying the podcast series that we've been doing over this past year. We've talked about a myriad of topics, lots of great stuff. Uh, the strat coalculation process, isotherming, hydroprocessing, Belco scrubbers, and Donawave technology, and a lot of other topics as well. And, you know, if you've missed any of those previous podcasts, about, you know, go to the refiningpitstop.com website and click on any of the links on the topics you've either missed or the ones you've not had a chance to see. And it'll take you to our YouTube channel to be able to see uh, many of those prior broadcasts. So, Kevin, what are we talking about today? Uh, our, our topic today is, is global refining market dynamics in a post-COVID era world. It's a lot of words, uh, but we're going to be talking with some experts from the industry. We're going to be talking with uh, John Paisy and Jaime Brito from Stratus Advisors on the effects of the COVID pandemic on the refining market, uh, kind of what's happened in the past, what's happening uh, now, and what do they see for the, the future of the industry. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it was a it was a really good talk we had in the uh, what's about to be shown the pre recorded session and and uh, if you have any questions at any time, including starting right now, go ahead and put those questions in. We're going to have a live Q and A with our uh, experts that are that are going to be coming back with us at the end. Let's get going on to our next pit stop. We're back. It's good to be with uh, our guest here today, John uh, uh, Paisy and Jaime Brito uh, from uh, Stratus Advisors. We're going to be talking today about global refining market demands in this post-COVID era world. And I want to give our, our guest, uh, John and Jaime, an opportunity to introduce themselves. So, uh, John, Jaime, give me a chance to understand uh, what it is you do uh, for the refining industry and, uh, some information about you yourselves personally as well. Yeah, well, thank you. This is John Pace. I'm head of uh, Stratus Advisor for a global research and consulting firm covering mm -hmm. the energy sector, all the way from production through consumption of energy, both, uh, refined products, but also unconventional renewables. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we do that within the context of a, a, glo a global perspective and also what's happening from a regulatory and policy standpoint. Okay. So how long have you worked for uh, Stratus uh, as well? Uh, I've been with, uh, I've been uh, running Stratus since uh, 2013. And before okay. that, I've been in the industry now coming up on my uh, fourth, uh, oh. fourth uh, uh, 40 years I've spent in uh, the industry. So you actually worked in the so, refining industry directly then? As a young uh, young man, I worked as, a, uh, uh, as an engineer in the refining sector. Very good. And then I right. went on and got a... a did that for a while, went overseas, got an MBA, and then been in the, this in the management and strategy consulting ever since. Interesting. Jaime, what about you? 
Hi, how are you? Thanks so much for the opportunity. Uh, I have been in the industry for over 25 years. Mm -hmm. I started my career uh, defining the monthly prices for the Mexican crude to be sold to the U.S. refiners and European mm -hmm. refiners as well. And after that, I came to the U.S. and I started working, working as a consultant for refining optimization. So throughout my career, I have been helping feasibility studies and divestments, investments for either new refineries or pipelines or storage facilities or any other commercial or upstream or downstream or petrochemical logistics project in basically all continents. So it's, it's a pleasure being here with you. It's great to have both of you with us today. So I would, I would ask this, you know, in a nutshell, uh, let's talk about what the demands have been on the market. Have we ever seen anything quite like this in the refining industry over its 120-ish year uh, lifespan? Uh, give me an idea there. Well, we, we've never seen anything like this, right? Uh, if you remember, this started first with uh, OPEC and mm -hmm. Russia, deal falling apart, crude mm -hmm. prices collapsing, and then, and then we got hit by COVID uh, last March, and then demand fell dramatically, right. first time ever on a global basis. Uh, and, and so it's a very unique uh, uh, set of circumstances and, and that has been seen across the whole energy sector. And, Absolutely. Uh, and for the last 18 months now, we've been recovering and moving closer to the pre-pandemic level, but we haven't got there yet. Right. And as you mentioned, COVID is still around and it's not right. going, it's not in our rear view mirror yet. Not We're quite. To see some real signs of it picking up again in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and other parts of the world. So. We're, we're still watching that very closely see how that will uh, will uh, take us forward absolutely and over the next year or so but uh that and that's something that we, we continue to watch right i know when i was a young man there was uh something that happened the energy crisis back during the early 70s uh to mid 70s that uh had a, a different spin to it but a similar kind of feel as far as oh no, where's the next tank of gas going to be kind of thing. But we haven't quite had that kind of situation, but certainly demand and, and production and supply issues have been all over the map, which makes a lot of instability uh, for the market. So um, I guess with that in mind, I know you've prepared some slides or material to, to talk about, to have some talking points. Uh, do you want to go ahead and share that now? Sure. That's right. Yeah, so uh, Jaime, uh, as I was saying, if you want to pick up here and talk about how the industry has recovered over this time uh, here, uh, sure, and where, uh, and how we're where we're headed. Sure, the the bottom uh, moment in in the last eighteen months for demand has been April of twenty twenty, where the world saw almost an eleven million barrels per day decline in refined products consumption. After that, up to today. Uh, global demand has uh, recovered basically at 97%. So we are really close to getting to pre-pandemic levels. Basically, the refined products that are, are left to be recovered, even though we have some percentage of gasoline, et cetera, that needs to be recovered worldwide, but the, the most of the products that need to still see some recovery in full are uh, jet fuel, basically, and uh, some gasoline uh, uh, qualities around the world, specifically in some regions in, in Asia and Middle East and Africa. But other than that, on a global basis, we are almost recovered there. And you can see also the path that uh, accompanied all of this uh, 
declining gasoline consumption with refinery runs responding in the same pattern. Now we are in the US basically at 92%. Last year we were still uh, at 86, 87. And in the worst moment of the pandemic, the US refinery runs went down to 56%. So the US uh, today is around 91, 92. And on a global basis, we are more or less on 89%. So still we did another five percentages to recover to pre-pandemic le levels on refinery runs. And on refining margins, we will see a little bit more granularity on the specific margins by region, but we are also around 90% recovered from, from the worst moments in the pandemic. Well, that's a piece of good news, at least, that there's been some recovery in the market. Yeah, so a quick question on that, Jaime. On the 2.5% uh, the, the, the that's still missing, would you say most of that is jet fuel? Yeah, yeah, on a global basis, most of that is jet fuel. If you see region by region, for instance, in Asia, you still have around 11% of gasoline to be recovered, gasoline consumption. Okay. Uh, in the Americas, it's basically almost 95, 96% recovered. But on a global basis, uh, maybe around three and a half million that we still need to see recovered are from jet fuel. But, but uh, only uh, gasoline is still not where we were pre-pandemic. Diesel is. Uh, and jet fuel, we're way behind yet on, on, on that still. For example, in the U.S., we're still running about 20% below what we were pre-pandemic, even in the last uh, few weeks as, as demand has really picked up. And, so, and that's we haven't got sense. back to pre-pandemic yet. Right. And that sort of makes sense because people haven't been taking the typical kind of summer vacations and traveling around as much as they were before. So that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, there's still uh, some areas that have more restrictions and you're still seeing uh, not nearly, of course, the people commuting to work, that is nowhere near back to normal. Right. Right, right. And we're even seeing that in our business, you know, where I used to travel once a month for work internationally and now I haven't traveled for 18 months. And Well, yeah, uh, on the plane, that, that's obvious. But exactly. uh, yeah, but I, I, I haven't been on the plane in 18 months, which is uh, the longest I've gone since... Uh, by, uh, for uh, for for decades, but yep. uh, uh, but also you're still seeing some uh, not yet up uh, to where we were pre pre pandemic on the gasoline demand either. But mm -hmm. diesel has diesel's come back and they're actually in some uh, we're running very close or even above in some places uh, above uh, pre pandemic, and uh, with uh, uh, um, with uh, increased shipments and so forth that have come with that with what we've seen some changes that have happened. Right, we're all doing a lot more Amazon orders. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Okay, and talk about the impact of the pandemic. Uh, These uh, maps show what is the thousand of barrels per day of refining capacity that has been already shut down since basically 2019, just prior to the pandemic until today. As you can see, uh, it's, it's pretty much well distributed. Almost 30% uh, of the refinery uh, capacity that has been already shut down came from North America and 32% from Europe and 31% from Asia. Basically in North America, we have all of the impact of, you know, the Martinez refinery, uh, Convent, uh, all the several refineries that over the last, particularly the last eight months have been announced that will be shut down within the next, you know, months or they have already been shut down. So all of these announcements are reflected in these numbers. 
And on top of that, we are anticipating that we will see additional refining capacity that will need to be shut down for the near future. We will talk a little bit more about that in the following slides. You want to add anything else, John? Well, just as you were mentioning, for example, the U.S. is running 92% utilization, which sounds pretty good, but it, we're on crude runs, we're still about 1.6, 1.7 million barrels below what we were in 2019. Uh, and that, of course, taking out that addition, that capacity has helped uh, uh, re margins recover and be able to uh, uh, increase uh, utilization as demand is still lagging some. And of course, we had a big buildup in in, uh, in inventory, and that's being pulled down over time. So if you look, for example, in the U.S., we're pretty much back to where we were 2019 in terms of gasoline, diesel, and so forth, where the inventories are pretty much the same as what they were. Same way with crude inventories also. I also think it's important to mention that uh, from all, all of this 1.1 million that you see that was rationalized in Asia-Pacific, the overwhelming majority of this capacity, over 90% of all of this is either on Australia, New Zealand, or uh, Singapore. I mean, there's basically no capacity being rationalized yet in these numbers from, for instance, developing economies like India or China. But for the near future, we have detected or identified which refineries potentially, even in these markets like India or China, could be rationalized in the near future. And we will talk about it in, in the next few slides. We have demand has picked up uh, and you can see how strong diesel is running. You can see gasoline is coming back to where it was, but jet is still way down and so forth across the barrel. Uh, so we're still not up there uh, yet, but we do expect demand to continue to grow over this time period. Though I, I, we are watching very closely what's going to happen to COVID over the next several weeks, especially in the U.S. I think if there's a risk to there being a demand, it's how the U.S. is going to react to what's happening right now with COVID. I uh, was going to mention that uh, an additional piece of information related to the graph is that specifically the consumption for LPG and NAFTA, uh, both in the short term, as we see here until the end of 2022, and towards the middle term, towards uh, 19. Uh, uh, 25 or, or, or 2025 20, or 2030, uh, we will see a significant growth for both LPG and NAFTA, underpinned, of course, by the petrochemical sector. So uh, if you watch uh, in general as a refiner, all of the trends that we are seeing on diesel consumption worldwide, uh, gas oil consumption being added into marine bunkers, and NAFTA and uh, LPGs. Uh, in general, we have uh, a very good support uh, for Asian refiners, for even Latin American or Middle Eastern or African refiners. If we see what is the expected consumption that we see from several sectors, including uh, transportation, marine industry, uh, commercial, industrial factories, et cetera, we see quite a lot of um, uh, support uh, for refining margins in the short term and the long term, primarily by uh, diesel, NAFTA, LPG, on a minor scale gasoline. And then at the bottom of the, of the table, of course, we have uh, jet fuel or fuel oil, no? the, the, the products that we are seeing as uh, lagging in terms of recovering prior to the pandemic or even for the future, as uh, you would expect fuel oil consumption is not expected to continue to grow necessarily because of all of the different specification changes in the marine industry for the last few years, but we we see some flattening um, uh, of the consumption on fuel oil for the next at least five to seven years. Okay. 
And then uh, as an overall result of the refinery runs, the consumption patterns, the response to, to, of the refinery industry to all of the different uh, swings that the demand by region has had, we have uh, these refining margins. This, uh, we, we reflected here just the main refining margins and the expectation that we have for uh, end of 2022. And as you can see, uh, in general, we expect that starting basically uh, the first quarter of 2022, in general, the world has more or less recovered most of the consumption uh, on the current trends that we have uh, for diesel, for uh, gasoline almost, uh, for jet fuel, et cetera, towards the second, third quarter of 2022. And therefore we have an expectation for healthier refining margins by the, the third quarter or the second half of 2022 in general, almost recovering the pre-pandemic levels. And you can see what was the, the bottom of the refiners, uh, the refining margins uh, during the pandemic. No, it was uh, really low during April, May, June of, of uh, last year. But uh, so far we are recovering almost 85 to 90% of the absolute levels of refining margins. And we see them uh, improving gradually over the, the next uh, 12 months. Yeah, and I think it shows the sign that the, the industry reacted uh, quickly to this. Right? The, we saw that with the rationalization and, uh, and, uh, and, the, and with the demand picking up, margins have picked up, uh, partially because the, the industry reacted very quickly to this change. Uh, we're also seeing a little dampening because of what, in some ways, uh, the crude price is artificially being propped up by what we see with, uh, 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 with the managed supply. And that, and that is uh, push crude prices up higher than, uh, and that's, that's narrowed some of the margins, but still margins are relatively attractive right now. Mm -hmm. Not where they were 2019, but still not bad. Uh, besides the, the pressure that COVID has put on, are, are there any things coming over the horizon that uh, could put some additional pressure or make some changes in the market space for refining? Well, I think we're coming up to this is one of the most interesting periods, if not the most interesting periods I've ever seen from a structural standpoint. We got more going on in the world now. And as I, I've said before, we used to joke, it, it was a lot about what OPEC's going to do, where oil prices are going. Uh, I think there's a lot more uncertainty and a lot more uh, scope for change that we're going to see over starting over the next 10 years and even further as we get past 2030 and into 2040 and 50. So if you look at some of the major things that we're looking at, of course, fuel specifications, they continue to tighten and we'll talk more about that. I mean, the vehicle fleet is gonna be a big impact, not only light duty, but what we see with medium duty and heavy duty, but definitely that uh, given the, the percent and the a proportion of demand that's associated with on-road it's going to be very critical and we're starting to see some real momentum going there but there is also some constraints that could keep uh the uh, uh the fleet not evolving as fast as uh, as maybe some are hoping for and then alternatives we're starting to see that not only with uh, biofuels in uh, like ethanol into the gasoline biodiesel but we're also starting to see uh talk of it in aviation also into the marine sector. So you're starting to see some real momentum pick up on, 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 on biofuels. And then the last, I think, is, is what we're going to see with the crude market. I think we, uh, I think the dynamics around the crude market is going to be different than what we've seen, uh, say, uh, from with the advent of, uh, 
of shale. We went through a time period where the crude market was being uh, driven in a certain way. The dynamics were being pushed some by all that new barrels coming on from the U.S. But I think now we're entering a new time period, a new era of what's going to happen around crude markets uh, because of what we're seeing with shale, the discipline, the lack of capital, uh, the consolidation and so forth. The, the mindset has completely changed there. Instead of uh, drive for reserves, drive for production. It's all now about push for cash, free cash flow, dividends, and so forth. And that's changing a lot of what's happening there. And it's going to change the dynamic as we go forward. I was going to ask so some more uh, detail on what you mean by the tightening of the fuel specifications. So, um, yeah, John, I think specifically, like, where do we see that? I mean, because I know every region always looks to improve their fuel specs, but given the pandemic, given what's happened over the last 18 months, what region do you see moving forward first? Because I know a lot of them have delayed uh, implementing fuel specifications around the world. So where do you see this first happening? Well, we're, we're still seeing some action in, in it, I think, and typically uh, Europe has been leading in this area. Then you see it kind of flows towards the US and then you've got the OECD type markets in Asia. Uh, and, then, and then you've got, uh, 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 Latin America, Central Europe, uh, uh, Middle East, and Africa in that. But if you're right now, you're, you're still seeing Europe pushing forward. We are, uh, we're seeing the general trends of lower sulfur, but also we're seeing uh, uh, more thoughts about how to reduce aromatics. There has been some slowdowns, but I think this is a this is a, tre a trend that's going to continue, and it's been going on for a long time. And and there's just going to be this push to get cleaner, and uh, 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 lower emission type fuels into the system. And, and you mentioned aromatics specifically. You know, in the U.S. earlier this year, the U.S. changed their aromatic specification in their gasoline. Have you monitored that? Have we seen an impact on that on on how people make up the composition of gasoline? So far, we haven't seen any real real change from that from that uh, from that change at this point. Now, it is something our fuel spec team monitors very closely and has been watching to see what the impact has been on in that area. Okay, um, but we have not seen that as being having a major impact on behavior at this time. Um, you know, the others that we've talked about is octane. We do see an upward trend, but it's been slower than we uh, that. It, it, it's not accelerating, driven by vehicles uh, uh, in, in the higher end. And then the other is we're seeing some lower octane grades being uh, um, uh, phased out over time. Uh, but we don't see that this is not necessarily accelerating at this time, but it is a trend that we see going forward. Look, Euro 7, I mentioned Europe. This would be a, a, a big impact because there's new pollutants it's regulating, but also, you know what it, it it effectively bans uh, internal combustion engines and diesel engines, uh, and that if that comes forward, that would be have a, a major impact on the uh, on the industry in Europe. Now there's a lot of pushbacks on that, so there's not necessarily that's going to go forward or uh, all that to that extent where you actually would start to uh, uh, have to phase out. Uh, internal combustion engines, say, by 2026 and so forth. That, that there's some, of course, there's pushback from uh, main OEMs in, in, in Europe on the, in this area, and they're still got to go through all the individual countries and so forth. So there's a lot more to go on that. But in general, all these, this trend here, it, it, same way with the 
attention on decarbonization are not going away. These, these are, uh, it's just how fast it goes, how fast it goes. No, it doesn't matter who's going to be the politicians that, uh, you know, which parties are, are in power or not. There's a momentum behind this stuff that is going forward. What was unusual for us this time, and, and Jaime, you might want to add in on this, is, you know, typically you see this noise being made when uh, you don't see a big push away from making something more expensive or ga uh, gas and fuel more expensive when uh, the, the economy is doing badly, which we've seen, right? I mean, the economy right. went through a very difficult stand, not only worldwide, but this momentum seemed to pick up. It was almost seen as a, a, a theme, okay, we, uh, it's an opportunity to, to move forward these type of policies, where in the past it would have been more about, okay, let's, what do we have to do to make sure we got cheap available energy, we, we prime the economy and we get the economy going. This seemed to really change. This is something I have not seen before where this is this crisis was be, is is actually accelerated some of these uh, attention on on uh, on uh, decarbonization, reducing emissions, and so forth. Uh, Jaime, I don't know if you want to add anything on that. Well, it's just in general the the overall trends that we are seeing on the regulatory and political environment. No, for instance, over the last twelve months, we have seen that the European Union has. Uh, announce all of these uh, fiscal and economic incentives to support the different economies in Europe for the recovery of COVID. But at the same time, uh, a percentage of those incentives are tied to commitments for investments on hydrogen projects, which to me is, right. you know, doesn't make any sense. Why, why would you like to, to use the, the recovery for necessarily pushing the agenda? But this is what it is, no? It's what we are seeing. And it's very likely that uh, leading with Europe, the rest of the economies in the world will gradually continue to push via incentives or via subsidies or via additional, uh, you know, windfall money for additional support for uh, hydrogen highways, for charging stations, for research, etc. That they will slowly but gradually displace uh, uh, a little bit of either diesel or gasoline consumption between now and 2050. Yeah, we've heard a little bit about that uh, off and on for the last couple of years. There's some in interesting things that will be coming up that we're right now. If, if you look at um, the goal to decarbonize versus what what actual policies are in place, there's a big gap, uh, and, uh, and 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 that gap is widening in some ways. It is right, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to uh, keep going forward here. Uh, and it's not necessarily that uh, policymakers are going to worry so much about the cost of it. They continue to move forward with this, even though it's it's having some 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 uh, fundamental issues on the security of energy and the cost of energy. And and uh, so that that's interesting. And one, as you, as you highlight here, is really EVs. So, what's a gauge on the total number of actual gas and diesel vehicles on the planet? Uh, just to give me an idea of how much of a dent this is actually going to be on the overall market. Well, uh, if you look at today, uh, the total fleet today of light duty vehicles is about 1.4 billion vehicles. Okay. Right. That's light duty. Billion okay. with a B. So you can see yeah. right yeah. now we're talking three to four or 5% of EV. Right. Okay. Now, 
so then the question is how fast can I ramp up? Now you can see on our reference case, which is, um, is very uh, conservative at this point, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you can see we're, no, we're only going to get up to uh, uh, somewhere around 13% or so by 2025, and then 30%, we're going to be up around 20% of vehicles. So it's going to take a uh, it would be a long time to get there. There are, are there things that could help accelerate that, uh, the, but there's also things that can keep it from, uh, from, uh, from uh, even reaching the targets that we have. Sure. Uh, you know, just to give, for example, in the U.S. right now, the uh, light duty fleet is um, around 260 million. Um, we think that's going to grow to 285 by 2030. We're talking that the EVs will be around 22 million vehicles at that time in the U.S. So right? like 10%, so that's, maybe. 10%, but, but, but that is much lower than what uh, IEA has put forward in some of their more aggressive forecasts, mm -hmm. uh, where they're talking about um, more that we would be up in the range of 40 to 50% vehicles will be EVs, but you can see that would take a drastic change. And right, yeah. and there's some issues there, right? First is infrastructure. Uh, so charging stations is one. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there's a huge need to build out infrastructure over the time. So we kind of use it as a rule of thumb that you have to have one charger for every 25 vehicles. So you can see how many would have to be built over time. Wow. Uh, you also have the issue of um, uh, 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 a cost yet that the EVs are still more costly. Part of that is the battery. Mm -hmm. And then there's supply chain issues around uh, EVs in, in, in the batteries, for example, mm -hmm. with uh, uh, some of the, the, the metals that are used in that. So uh, if you look at something like cobalt, uh, we, we think it's going to be a very much of a struggle to get adequate amount of cobalt in, available for even our forecast, right? Because based on our forecast, which is about half of what the IEA is saying, and even uh, in the one of their more aggressive cases, something like 45% of cobalt would have to go to EV batteries, right? So, wow. so that's going to cause the problem. So, right. so, and if you know that the cobalt situation is, it's very much um, centered in very difficult. Uh, uh, not the most stable parts of the world. The, the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo has something like sixty percent of the reserves, so that's a bit that's an issue. And it's also uh, hard to get to as well. I mean, it's very right. difficult to build mines there, uh, also. And and, and uh, now the the industry is working to reduce cobalt in and coming up with it, but even taking into account what we expect in terms of cobalt usage some of the new battery technologies, we still see this being an issue. And that's right. just one factor, right? So there is no perfect answer here, right? To move away from gasoline and, and diesel and oil. Uh, right. There are, there are um, other supply chain issues. There's also uh, uh, other types of pollution and other societal issues that come with all this. But it certainly is going to put a little bit of a pinch on the refining industry as a whole if if it does get a foothold and begin to grow, of course. Yeah, our forecast, if you look at 2030, we're talking somewhere on the, uh, on the gasoline, we're talking somewhere between 2.5 to 3 million barrels per day of gasoline demand will be taken off the, be reduced by that type of penetration of EV. So you can see on the, it's definitely going to have an impact, right? 
Mm-hmm. And, and we know we're going to have some EVs, right? There's no right. way that we're not. And it's going to continue. It's how fast and how much will it grow over time. Well, I mean, is that going to make the gasoline that is produced at that point and beyond even cleaner burning gasoline uh, with higher octane values and push the quality of uh, the refined product to a higher level than we currently have it uh, as a whole? Or is that going to have much an effect? I think this is one of the issues you're going to see with refining. You're going to have moderating, declining demand at the same time a push for higher quality products. And then how, which means you're going to have to invest. You're also going to have the issue of decarbonizing your own uh, operation. So you're going to have increased cost of doing business at the same time you're going to have uh, not uh, less favorable market in terms of demand. And you're also going to have an issue with the crude markets that I'll let Jaime talk more about where you discourage production of oil and natural Mm -hmm. gas in a time where demand is still structurally set up to require oil and gas. That means you're going to have artificially high prices and you're also going to have a very strong OPEC at that point for a period of time. So this transition period is going to be very difficult. It could be for not only the industry, it could be for the global economy also. But one thing we know in the past, you used to always count on that, that uh, policymakers would back off when things got too difficult, right? When when prices got to get too high, they decide we need more oil. Now, right. one indication of that still is the case is this recently the National Security Advisor of for the current administration was pleading with OPEC plus to produce more oil, right? So that that was just a few weeks ago, right? At the same time. Uh, the Biden administration was pushing to, um, in some ways, making it more difficult to, to produce oil and gas in the U.S. But that, that is something that's all going to come into play here. Those structural factors, the reality of what's out there in terms of, of, uh, of, of the science, the engineering, and then the policymakers on top of that. And where right. that, you know, that's why it's just going to be very interesting to see how this works out. Uh, I'm a, we're interested to see what's going to be COP26 is coming out at end of October. They're meeting in uh, Glasgow. Uh, we'll see if they're going to push forward with um, uh, some sort of uh, try and push forward with some sort of universal or global price on carbon. Um, you know, uh, you know, China's already, you know, you've got the ETS in Europe. China is now putting forth a, a carbon market. Uh, they've excluded, refi- uh, it's only focused on the uh, power sector right now, but they're, they're showing that they're willing to go forward with some of this at least uh, in some way, which uh, could uh, remove a barrier to this happening, right? So then you right. isolate and the U.S. is out there on its own trying to fight against this. And if you got China, you got Europe pushing forward, it gets very difficult for the U.S. to stand back and say, oh, no, 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 we don't want carbon pricing. We don't want to go forward. And, and of course, the U.S. isn't unified anyways, right? I mean, we're right. already, I mean, there's a lot of people who support carbon uh, pricing and, and aggressive decarbonization. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there's definitely some issues there on the refining side and, and in general, this energy transition. Well, a lot of this has sounded kind of 
kind of dark. I, I hate to say it that way. But when I see a dark cloud coming, I always look for a silver lining. Is there any silver lining with any of this information that you've shared thus far? If you look at the IEA plan that they put forward, the one where it was the net zero plan that came out what a scenario a month or so ago, right. that would require more capital expenditures just for that energy transition than the world is spending today on capital. Wow. Uh, CapEx altogether, just on one sector. That means that you wouldn't be investing in pharmaceuticals, you wouldn't be investing Anything. in any, and all, if you took all the CapEx that's been spending now and you put, mm -hmm. that's where it would take in energy. So I would say it's going to be a great time for those who know how to manage projects and, and raise money and, and do engineering, right? But, right? but I think there'll be opportunities. You're seeing it here, right? Uh, we got the slide up on, uh, on alternative fuels. Mm -hmm. There's companies, there's investors, there are entrepreneurs making money today on biofuels right. and renewables, right? And um, so uh, the, there'll be winners here. Uh, and, and then those who are operating company or refiners, how they adapt to these opportunities. I mean, you've seen they've tried to move into HVO, but one of the problems the industry has, or, or maybe that's the benefit of the free market for consumers is everybody moves at once, cause some problems on the, uh, on the, on the uh, economics associated with renewables because right? mm -hmm. it affects the price of the LCFS and so forth, and it makes it an uh, ability to get feedstock and so forth But uh, in that. But definitely biofuels is going to play a role now. It's going to play a role through 2030, and it's going to play a role after 2030. Yep. So when you look at uh, heavy duty, it's still, there's not real, you know, we got fuel cells and electric is out there, but uh, it's not, there's still a lot of hurdles to, to, for that to have big uptake. Same way in marine, uh, you know, biofuels is going to play a role. I mean, you got the methanol, ammonia, and so forth in there, but that's all uh, on the ability to make low carbon, renewable type uh, uh, methanol, uh, uh, hydrogen, and ammonia. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the economics uh, and the cost of that and the economics uh, and the ability to scale that up is yet to be uh, fully. Uh, uh, yeah, the term I mean, there's still uncertainty around that. Now, I yeah, think Jaime, yeah. if you want to say something about Marines or uh, Amer uh, the Marine sector, John, I guess what I'm hearing is 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 your look at the future of beyond you know through 2030 and even beyond. There's going to be a place for you know, the, the fossil fuel industry, there's going to be a place for renewables, there's going to be a place for EVs for quite a while. Is that kind of in a nutshell what you're saying? Yeah, and there's going to be some people who are going to make real money from it, right? Because what you're going to end up is, I think you're going to have, uh, uh, going through this transition, we're going to have a less secure energy framework than than we had in the, in the golden age of oil. Because and, and so you're going to have these periods of time where I think certain refiners will be able to make a lot of money when margins uh, might, might be there. Certainly on the, uh, 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 we're going to see more volatility, I think, on oil prices. So that ability to manage that volatility, the uncertainty will be important. I think making sure that you have the right set of assets, and we talk more about this that we can about how important it is to have structurally sound assets and to um, be proactive in, in um, 
in the way you manage that portfolio of assets, where you don't invest, what are you going to let go away, how are you going to manage that, and um, and and then how do you take advantage of the uh, on, on the regulatory side and the and some of the opportunities there? This transition is going to take a long time, right? Even in 2050, we're still going to have a need for oil and refined products, unless there's something dramatically. Uh, uh, different is happening at that point. I just want to mention here also that if uh, you're watching this and haven't had a chance to put a question in, our Q&A session is coming up very shortly. So uh, if you've got a burning question, go ahead and get that in. And uh, you just need to click on the, uh, the link at the bottom of the page while you're watching. So uh, moving into the, it was a comment about the marine sector as well that Jaime, you were going to mention uh, before we move on to the last couple of points. Yeah, I want to mention uh, also an additional comment and then going into the uh, marine sector. Uh, I want to mention that if you go back to the basics of the business, uh, everything is driven by demand always, no? Uh, before you have, you know, the offshore sector, before you have refineries, you have to always uh, want to respond to a particular consumption pattern that is in the world. And demand is always driven by demographics primarily, no? You can have different economic growth, you can have different efficiencies, technologies, regulations, whatever, but it's always about demographics and about demand. And if you see between now and 2050, you will continue to see population growth in Asia, Africa, right. Middle East, Latin America. So I'm, I'm making this comment because, you know, by 2025, more or less, uh, India will be the most populated country. Uh, it, we will, it will surpass China. Mm -hmm. And the, the potential in India for vehicle ownership is huge. It's way higher than, than currently China is. So what I'm saying is, there's still going to be a significant uh, requirement for gasoline and diesel in specific regions in the world. And we're just talking about here uh, uh, a new pattern, a new uh, trend in terms of uh, global crude flows, gasoline flows, diesel flows, uh, everything that is going to be coming out of the industry in the next few years, regardless of the carbonization, regardless of hydrogen investments, et cetera, will be about where and where uh, is it is, is the ship going to, no? Right. Or, or how the refiner in the US Gulf Coast that is gonna take advantage of the low uh, natural gas, low crude and high margins is gonna be able to reach out all the way to the African markets besides Latin America and Europe. So what we're saying is there's gonna be an opportunity for business worldwide and for the refining industry definitely and petrochemicals industry, but it's just a matter of which companies will be weaker or, or which refiners will be able to uh, survive or, or impose adapt. themselves to other rationalizations. Yep, no? yeah, adapt and, and, and then move on from there. Absolutely. Uh, and the marine sector is a specifically interesting case that could be you know, seen as an example for the rest of the industry, including the transportation sector, because in, in Stratas, we just talk about the facts, no? about the numbers, and, and we are objective. But if you allow me a personal opinion, uh, I think it's a, a little bit silly that you know you have competing technologies at the same time in the same industry, and any one of them requires a huge investment. Yep. So you know you have companies that are, are right now committing to very large investments, sizable investments on LNG for the marine industry and others that are investing a lot on ammonia and others for hydrogen. And if you try to translate these kind of patterns into the transportation industry in the highways in the US or in Europe, 
you have a refining and retailer industry that will be spending a lot of money on decarbonization efforts anyways. And on right. top of that, you want to address, you know, now invest a little bit on hydrogen stations and, uh, you know, electric vehicle stations, and it's going to be impossible, in my opinion. And that's why we say that if all of these efforts move forward, you're going to have an overall environment where you have um, energy security really, really difficult because uh, the, the companies in general will be so weakened because of all of these additional investments right. that uh, the, it will de-incentivize investment in the upstream sector. And then yeah. we will depend more on the cobalts of uh, the Congo or, or China, et cetera. No? So sure. it's, it's a very interesting environment for the next 30 years. Yeah, it's been a, a particular interesting time also for, for OPEC in general and for the Saudis in particular, because if you remember over the last 25 years, most of the decisions on the Saudi side in terms of uh, OPEC uh, strategy, uh, Saudi production, Saudi strategy, et cetera, have always been led by the Ministry of Energy of the country. And the last 25 years, we, we had, you know, petro engineers in this position. We have, you know, Ali Naimi between 1995 and 2016. And then for three years, we have the other Minister of Energy, Farid Al-Khalid. And then just precisely before the pandemic in October 2019, you have a royal person, uh, the Prince uh, Abdulaziz, which became the Ministry of Energy in Saudi Arabia. And he has a completely different mental structure than the other predecessors. Now you have one person that is taking the decisions on the Saudi and the OPEC strategy, being part of the royal family and being focused on the short-term revenue to be able to spend a lot of money on, on, on response to the COVID pandemic and all that. So as you have seen, the, the structurally higher crude price uh, crude price over the last 18 months versus the fuel prices is a, a response to this structure in the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Energy, where the Saudis, accompanied by the Russians, who have always been very hawkish, are trying to bring prices as high as possible. It would look like, regardless of what happens in the short term with the incentivizing alternative fuels, it would look like, of course, the Saudis uh, care about the long term and care about maintaining their own business in the long term. And they will be managing the production decisions until 2022 in such a way that they try to obtain the maximum amount of revenue, taking care of not incentivizing too much alternative fuels. But in the short term, we have had a, a refining environment where the crude price has been structurally higher. And this definitely has impacted also the possibility of uh, capitalizing and investment on the refining industry as well. And the others I mentioned, the shale is going, um, production in the U.S. is creeping back very, very slowly. Uh, we're still um, uh, close to, uh, uh, you know, close to 2 million barrels or so below what we were. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've seen very slow pickup. Uh, the, the amount of rig, uh, uh, operating rigs has been building at a very slow pace. Uh, that would take us through uh, Q3 of 2022 to get back to where we were pre-pandemic. So I, when you look outside of uh, OPEC and the OPEC plus countries and you look at where is there potential to really push oil growth, uh, it becomes more difficult. So I think it, it's hard not to see OPEC gaining some additional uh, power or control during this, this time period. Right. Uh, 
and uh, and that and that pushes prices up, which uh, higher than they would be otherwise. And, uh, but as you can see, I think our view is margins will be uh, relatively good, but 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 there is refining margins will be uh, uh, dampened a little bit because of the higher uh, oil price than what would be a structural, uh, which would you would expect with the supply demand dynamics. Right. Uh, because you have this uh, ability to artificially manage the supply. Um, now, there is risk how long this holds together. I mean, OPEC plus can always spin out of control, but this has been held up very well for a while, partially because the Saudis been willing to do that, right? They, they took the unilateral reduction of 1 million barrels uh, of, per day production back when the, uh, there was some difficulty. So, um, uh, but that 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 this is I think this era before where uh, I think that I, we quickly passed through this shale being a big uh, uh, being the this idea that U.S. is going to ramp up quickly their production through shale I think has gone away that, those days are gone right and uh, and 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 that was a very quick uh, period from from through a cycle. Right, I mean, going from the new thing to this, the now mansion, like we all, the, the onshore U.S. has been managed for a long time. It kind of went through this cycle very quickly. It did. Right. And, uh, that that's interesting. But um, I think that so it's just going to be a, 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 a different than what we saw between 2013 and say 2018. What last comments would you have before we go to the Q and A session here? Well, we, we talked about all these different factors, the challenges, mm -hmm. the regulations, and so forth. But the real takeaway that we see is there's going to be further need for refining rationalization over, the, over this period of time. Uh, we think structural factors are going to be very important. So which refineries are, uh, are uh, warrant investment, which ones are best suited for the future, can weather through the more difficult times. It's going to be even more important. And those structural factors may not always be the most obvious. Having the right location in a protected area can allow for, on paper, maybe a mediocre or a below average refinery to survive, right? Because it's protected logistically. Right. And then I, with all those other challenges, I do think we can ignore that there is going to be this drive to decarbonize and, it, and, and, and the refinery sector is not going to be... Uh, uh, exempt from this area. And you're already seeing this with, like I said, mentioned the ETS in Europe, carbon prices going less than five euros, uh, uh, up to now over 60 euros uh, uh, for the price of carbon has really put some pressure on some of those. Uh, and and then we'll see how this evolves over time. So, um, so it's going to be uh, uh, some challenges, but also, as we said, some real opportunities for the right uh, those who can take advantage and be flexible. All right. Well, good deal. Well, uh, again, if you haven't put your questions in, uh, go ahead and do that now. We're about to move to our Q&A session. John, Jaime, uh, thank you so much for your participation in this and uh, get ready for those questions. So here they come. So Kevin and I will see you and our guest in just a moment. Q&A right now.
All right, we're back, and it's time for our Q&A session. It's good to have everyone with us, and John and Jaime, uh, thank you for that, that vivid discussion about all the different things going on in the refining industry, and uh, and, and like I said just uh, there at the end, if you haven't put a question in yet, go ahead and get it in. We've got the experts with us. We're glad to take your questions. I want to start it off with one. Uh, I saw this one, and I kind of chuckled a little bit, but uh, you kind of talked about it a little as well uh, in parts. But uh, if you were a betting person and you owned a refining aftermarket equipment business, geographically, where would you focus your efforts? And I think it's going to be a difficult one because you kind of mentioned it's hard. It's hard to tell. Uh, but uh, I think it's kind of interesting. Well, I mean, do you want me to start off here? Uh, I can sure. just say in, in general, we see refining investments still holding up in uh, Asia and the emerging markets. Obviously, as Jaime mentioned during the talk, Asia's population will continue to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, their demand will continue to grow. And, and we expect further investments there. And also as they're moving towards more restrictive uh, fuel specifications that will require investment. Right. I do think the U.S. Uh, hub there in the Gulf Coast will still be a viable uh, refining center, given the uh, structural advantages, the access to markets, including export markets, mm -hmm. uh, relatively uh, less expensive crude, uh, less expensive natural gas, and so forth, I think it will also be an advantage. And then, I mean, Africa and the Middle East are also, you know, those are areas that, I mean, Africa's only had over a billion people in the next 30 years. Yep. Those people, so it's going to be almost as big as India and China together. It will be not, not quite, but it's going to be very uh, major uh, location for, uh, uh, for uh, in terms of uh, population. And mm -hmm. at some point that uh, Africa will start to grow and they're going to want the same things the rest of the world wants. So of course. Uh, there, there's opportunities out there in, in different areas. And Jaime, if you want sure. to build on that, please go ahead. I am with you. I think, you know, Africa is, is an obvious region for opportunities. I think we'll have opportunities in the Middle East as well and, and in Europe. I mean, the, the problem with rationalization is not that there's too much absolute capacity, it's what kind of capacity and where specifically in the region. No? Yeah. So you might need, uh, or well, you could have robust refining investments, even in Europe, even though we expect to see at least 1.2 million barrels of additional refinery rationalization in Europe for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. so I think there's opportunities everywhere. Well, the same person posted another question, which to me seems to be a follow-up, and they seem to have some inside info here. But, uh, but since India is a region with the largest population growth globally, uh, it has a huge opportunity for vehicle ownership which type of vehicle will play the largest role? And I believe they mean in India. Uh, in other words, are people going to buy traditional fuel vehicles or are people in India, you think, going to go with electric vehicles? Well, we still think there's going to be a plenty of uh, internal combustion engine type vehicles sold in India. Mm -hmm. One, they're less expensive, upfront cost. Right. Uh, and and uh, and therefore, we we still expect that there the be plenty of those type of vehicles sold. We mm -hmm. also do expect electric vehicles to be sold there, but there are issues around grid 
infrastructure and so forth in India. And then, you know, you, what you have is uh, you'll have a number of people moving from two, two wheel vehicles to a small vehicle, uh, four wheel uh, vehicle, and still the cheapest is going to be the uh, internal combustion engine at, at this point. Uh, and, and, right. and so we do expect there will be more growth in, in those type of vehicles in India right. over time. Okay. You know, um, another person asked a question. We've seen a lot of refineries uh, holding on to cash, even for regular maintenance. Uh, when do you see this trend changing? Is it in the near future? Or are we talking uh, this is going to be a longer haul? Well, I, I think refiners in general hold on to cash, right? I mean, that's yeah. the one advantage of why integrated oil companies like them is that they are cash generators mm -hmm. and help smooth out some of the uh, volatility of, uh, associated with upstream. So uh, I think, you know, there, we're, we're seeing there is the, all companies in general are still being conservative. There's a lot of uncertainty still with the... Uh, with, as we mentioned, COVID, but also I, I think there's concerns about uh, what's going to happen to the uh, global economy as as we uh, start to try and move back to more normal monetary policy uh, mm -hmm. here in the U.S., but also in Europe. Uh, also, there's issues of fiscal policy of some of that support will have to be pulled away. So there, you, you get through the, the crisis and there's usually an echo of uh, something else happens down a few years down the road as the world tries to re reposition and get back to more normal time. So I, I would expect uh, uh, refiners, as with other companies, will stay relatively conservative, at least through, the, uh, through 2022, I think, to see where we come out on the other side here. And Jaime, I don't know if you have a different view on that, but that's, uh, I would expect that we will. And we're, and we're still seeing it with our own, uh, uh, in general, with this, in, the, in, the, in the business environment. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And well, the, the interesting thing also is that for the next uh, few years, uh, that section of the business is supposed to be making a lot of investments, uh, not only for decarbonization of their own operations, but also for you know the, the distribution, wholesale, the last mile delivery, all the way to retail. Uh, it is expected that they, they might need to invest quite a lot on you know electric uh, stations, hydrogen stations, etc. So. Absolutely. They better get a, get a hold of cash right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, because it's great to have your charging station at, at home to keep your battery charged. But if you don't have it on the road, um, you're out of power pretty quick if you're not careful. Um, what opinion does the team have on increased push and demand for hybrid and electric vehicles? Uh, you kind of mentioned some things about that, but let's uh, maybe try to address this question. Well, I... There's, of course, the obvious is always more government support, more government subsidies, which will help. Sure. Uh, uh, but the, the, there has to be still a reduction in upfront costs on electric vehicles uh, to increase demand. Uh, some mm -hmm. of that will be associated with the battery, which is still about 30% of the overall cost of an EV. And, and there are working on battery technologies to try and uh, uh, including like the solid state type battery, which is to help bring down uh, the use of, uh, of the more rare metals, which will, will help. Um, there's... Um, there, there needs to be more investment. I think there's, there's an issue. We mentioned the, the, uh, the, uh, 
charging stations, but there also has to be more capacity built in batteries. There has to be capacity built in the in in building the vehicles. Right. I mean, we're talking about massive industry, uh, and and there's going to be have to be a lot of investments made in that. And the, it is not necessarily EVs or, or uh, there's, uh, as we've mentioned, there's no perfect answer. There's a lot of other unintended consequences or uh, right. associated with moving towards EVs. And uh, the mining industry, as long as you're re, uh, uh, reliant on rare earth and rare metals, mm -hmm. uh, that, that's going to be a very uh uh, some difficult situations associated with that type of technology. That's not going away. Right. And, and uh, at some point, the electric vehicle pricing may be so high, you it's impossible for except a small sector of the population to purchase them it, with those uh, rare earth metals and stuff going up in prices, demand yeah, and, and, and pushing and, and the market that, goes up. That's right. And, 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 and there has to be a way that you can uh, make it uh, vehicles affordable for uh in in where we see a lot of growth in the uh, uh, countries uh, that are still emerging or developing economies, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be more price sensitive. And 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 we, but we see, I mean, China is making a, a cheap, uh, e, a relatively inexpensive EV with a different type of battery technology that uh, doesn't rely so much on cobalt and that, and it, it doesn't have a lot of power, doesn't have the range, it doesn't have the uh, some of the uh, and don't have the size, uh, but but they are making some uh, uh, progress in that area. Sure. So so, but the, we still think there's there's going to be some barriers to how fast you can ramp up EVs. Uh, right. There's some structural issues. I mean, just the life uh, cycle of uh, and the scrappy traits associated with vehicles. They last 10, 15, some markets 20 years. So you're not going to flip that around. And it just going to take some time for that to happen. Right. It kind of associated with this, and you also alluded to it uh, in some of the previous discussion, too. This person asked, electric vehicles, we need, of course, electric power to substitute uh, the road fuels we're using now. Is the global power industry anywhere near ready to produce enough clean power that is power not from coal, fuel, oil, and gas? Because, you know, there's always inefficiencies when transferring energy from one form to the other. And if you're burning coal and natural gas and uh, other coal-based products to make the power, there's really not an offset. In fact, you may actually even produce more carbon dioxide uh, in the process if, if you're not using completely clean energy to generate the power you're charging those electric cars with. So this is really a core question here that this person asked. Is the power industry anywhere near ready to supply totally clean power for these electric vehicles? And this is kind of outside your wheelhouse. Yeah, to some well, extent, we do but... look at, we, we, we we're looking very closely at what's happening in the power sector mm -hmm. uh, uh, because of the impact it has on natural gas and also the connection it has to transportation and EVs in, in, in particular. So right. this is something we do watch and we look at the whole power sector. Uh, our, no, the, the power sector is not ready to produce uh, green uh, uh, uh totally renewable type electricity, nowhere near that. Right. So there's still going to be a, uh, there is the, the shift away from coal to natural gas that's happening in the U.S. It will start to happen in some other areas, including India and China, which are still heavily reliant on coal. Right. Uh, but the get to the, 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 the 
the uh, power sector is nowhere near being able to eliminate hydrocarbon and get the renewables. And right. also the, for that to happen, you still need backup. So you need your, your backup in terms of something like that is uh, uh, powered by uh, natural gas that can cycle fast, or you need a huge amount of storage. And so the grid would have, there'd have to be huge investment in the grid. And, right. uh, and, and that uh, obviously in certain places, they're still dealing with brownouts and so forth. Uh, not in some emerging markets and even maybe part of the US, there's some uh, issues around uh, the ability to handle some of this. So there would, right. that, that would be huge money will have to go into this area. Uh, if, you, if you're going to go to green, all yep. green on that. Yep, solar or wind or whatever the right. case may be. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a, a question that's also kind of interesting. You mentioned during your presentation that uh, Europe has been really quiet in terms of activity in the last few years, uh, but you mentioned that Europe might be the first movers. Uh, uh, why do you see Europe as being first movers? Uh, well, and, and is it because of the Euro 7 commentary that's going on now? Is that is that part of the reason why? Yeah, well, I, I think in general, yes, the Euro 7, the Fit for 55, uh, the other uh, 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 initiatives they have to really decarbonize the, that market. So they are pushing that. And typically, Europe has been the leader in pushing out fuel specs, that, which then gets copied or uh, slowly adopted by the rest of the world. Gotcha. And they move there. So you're at Euro 6, and some regions are at Euro 4, Euro 5, but they, they move towards that. And Europe is now... Uh, continuing to take the lead in some of these uh, uh, regulations, policy type initiatives. Mm -hmm. And if they, as I said, if they move to Euro 7, it would effectively ban internal combustion engines and diesel power. So that would be a huge step. Now we, uh, the, the, as I mentioned in the talk, there is some, going to be pushback on that by, by, uh, by certain countries who are uh, more, uh, their economies are more tied to the uh, uh, to the uh, auto industry. And so we're, we're watching that closely on how that's going to evolve over time. But right. Europe is, is pushing and leading this. You see this also in, uh, in general, uh, uh, they'll be much more aggressive in the upcoming UN COP 20, uh, I think it's 26 coming up here at the end of October, November. They'll be much more aggressive pushing for things, uh, uh, trying to uh, get uh, targets and, uh, and, and other policies in place to push the world towards a, a lower carbon footprint. Right. Um, another person asked a question about biofuels, which you did mention toward the end uh, in, in more volume. Um, they're asking uh, biofuels are heavily subsidized and may or may not make economic sense without subsidies. Without a crystal ball, you know, do you see biofuels being a long-term solution? And if so, do you expect biofuels to remain a significant portion of the fuels blending past 2030? Well, we see biofuels being part of the mix. Okay. It's not going to be the a solution by itself because you just do not have the ability to scale to replace uh, hydrocarbon-based uh, 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 refine uh, products. So, but it will be it will play a role in, um, and it is in in the with uh, with uh, renewable biofuels with drop-in fuels. Uh, you'll see it in the aviation. Uh, it will play a role. 
longer and to maybe to a greater extent in heavy duty in the Marine because there's not the available subs at this point technology to move away from liquid fuels to, or to lower uh, carbon type fuels. Uh, 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 for uh, because the fuel cells and electric uh, heavy duty trucks are not really that um, uh, at this point do not appear to be that uh, uh, well positioned for uh, in terms of cost and and so we, we do see biofuels playing a role uh, and they and in in uh, in um, and and they are are continuing to be subsidized they do reduce the carbon footprint uh, so there is some advantages around that now. As we see, we're seeing some pushback because as the as 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 you start running out of things like uh, 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 um, used cooking oil, and you have to start moving into other uh, 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 feedstock, it starts to impact uh, vegetable oil. Or... Yeah, and it's affecting yeah. other industries, including right. uh, uh, food, but also other industries that use that, that type of, uh, uh, of uh, material as feedstock. So, yep. so there is, there is, it's, there are always, there are, biofuels will always bump up against that issue on the availability of feedstock and what it, and the impact it has on other sectors. Right. And, and a lot of people, when they think biofuels, they think purely soybean or, or corn oil-based uh, biofuels. I, I've seen some fodder here and there about algae oil uh, based biofuels also being at least looked at or tinkered with in the background. But uh, a lot of these options require a lot of land or a plot of land for the specific purpose of growing algae or something and pulling CO2 out of the air in the process of growing that biomass. But it is an interesting technology and uh, hopefully it, it, it will continue to be part of the equation. Yeah, our, our biofuels team track, our renewable fuels team tracks about 30 different feedstocks. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different biomass <clears throat> and different feedstocks that are available to go into this. There's always, right. there's limitations on the, on, on the availability. There's sure. issues of land use and so forth. So there is there are these issues, but we do see biofuels staying part of the mix. Gotcha. And, and just as we see, um, because there's no one perfect answer. That's why you're going to uh, you're going to see the need for for hydrocarbon, and you're going to see biofuels, and then the EVs and other uh, other alternatives that will be all part of the mix. Right. Um, another question is uh, how electric vehicles decarbonization and all this political environmental stuff that is hydrogen NLG for marine and trucks would influence industry within the next five, 10 years, or is it more relevant for 20, 30 years down the line? And I think what the person is getting at, are we there yet to start doing replacement or is it still on the horizon, just like fusion energy? You know, it's coming in another 20 or 30 years. You know? I, I think we're closer than fusion and it, it, it is having an impact now in certain markets. I mean, we're right. seeing biofuels as part of the mix. Uh, of course, you're hitting the blend wall and ethanol. Mm -hmm. uh, at this point, but you have biodiesel growing uh, with the renewable type diesel, uh, and it's spreading into different parts of the world. I mean, even Latin America, you're seeing that they're looking at biofuels. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, and Brazil has been doing uh, the production of ethanol from uh, sugarcane for many years, right? Oh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And, and you're doing things also on the biofuels. They're looking at carbon capture projects that make corn-based ethanol have a, 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 a better uh, carbon intensity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then you're seeing it on the EVs. Now, not so much. I mean, 
you're seeing the U.S. is less so than other markets, partially the, the, uh, the characteristics of the U.S. market, a lot of space, uh, the uh, longer commutes, uh, more spread out, uh, uh, the desire for bigger automobiles is different than, say, Europe, especially Northern Europe, where you have a, a much more con uh, uh, population density, much higher, uh, and they're much more concerned in Europe, I would say, at this point, about mm -hmm. the, the environment than maybe the average American, and uh, they are ramping up sales or, or purchases of EVs at a pretty high rate at this point, but it's a small right. market, right? When you look at Denmark, you look at Norway and some of these, these are relatively small markets, but still you're seeing it there. And and uh, so, no, it, it, it's it, obviously it will build over time, but it's having an effect now and it will have an effect over the next five to 10 years and it will continue to have an effect. Sure. Um, one last question about decarbonization, at least one last question so far. Uh, we've had a couple of late questions put in. Uh, on the decarbonization efforts, what government regulations would it take to get refiners to start implementing strategies to reduce their facilities carbon footprint? Well, I mean, I mean, one is to put a price on carbon and make the and 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 put the refiners under and tell them they have to pay a penalty if they don't reduce their carbon emissions either right. through uh, through some sort of carbon capture program uh, using renewable hydrogen, uh, and, something uh, uh, green or uh, hydrogen or something that that would uh, that would be the, the 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 one way they could definitely right. do it is is put a cost on it. Right. And that like in Europe or. Uh, yeah, that's what Europe's talking about. Uh, price of about, carbon right? went from something like five euros, and I think it went over 60 euros uh, uh, last week or two weeks ago it did. So that starts to have a material impact, and they have to weigh the cost of doing uh, uh, business and paying that type of uh, uh, tax, tax for, effectively yeah. versus mm -hmm. making the investment. Right. And I think, actually, this is our last question. If... Uh, other regions need refining rationalization while Africa needs more fuel. Would it be more reasonable for Africa to continue to buy fuels from outside or invest in their own infrastructure with refineries? Well, and it seems I'm... like an obvious answer about investing for, for making refineries in Africa natively, but that's just my thought. What are, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, there, there's always this on, 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 on uh, security of supply. Absolutely. Uh, in uh, uh, all, uh, you know, we see this in Asia, the same type of questions come up. How much refining capacity do we need? How independent do we need to be? And mm -hmm. I don't think India or Africa will, needs to be uh, fully balanced. I think they should take advantage of the ability to Im import product from the Middle East. And even as Jaime said, down the road, maybe even the U.S. and, 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 and Europe. But that, I, I think it makes sense for them to build some of their own refining capacity also at, at some point. Sure. They don't need to be balanced and definitely not long, but they do, uh, especially in the markets where there is oil and so forth, I think it does make sense for them to invest some in their own industry sure. and, and, uh, and, and to get uh, and, and to monetize more of, the, of, of their own crude, I think, yeah. in those markets. Jaime, if you want to add anything on that. No, no, I agree with you. I mean, typically you, you do feasibility studies around uh, upstream locations so you can integrate with a refinery there. But uh, it's a similar question to, to what happened in Latin America over the last 25 years, no? I mean, do, do you build a new refinery in Mexico or do you use import from the Gulf Coast? 
and 90% of the of the cases, it makes sense to just import it from the Gulf Coast. But in some specific cases, it makes sense to build a refinery right in front of the oil, no, of the oil wells. You want to make sure that you get a good structural underpinning to any investment, uh, right. and that goes with revamps, upgrades, and of course grassroots. And I think that's that's going to be more and more important as, as we move through these uh, this time period. Yeah, on, a, on a quick summary, uh, the rationalization that we have seen so far since 2019 to now is a little bit above 3 million barrels per day. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, completed a study a few months back where we see in a range of 5 to 7 million of additional rationalization uh, to be completed in the next 10 years right. because of the specific demand patterns, etc. But separated from that, the refining investment that we see for the next 25 years because of the mangroves in specific uh, regions, developing regions, et cetera, tops 12 million bars per day of additional refining capacity. And some of that is in Africa. So, you know, again, it's a matter of uh, just knowing where to invest, uh, but there's definitely a lot of uh, business opportunities here. Right, and that 12 million barrels a day, are we, with an average size of a refiner, are we talking eight to 10 new refineries being built or, or is it bigger than that? It's uh, way bigger than that. Okay. Okay. All right. I grew up in Pascagoula and a large refiner has a refinery there. You probably know which one. So I, you know, I always gauge it by that, that, that the size of that refinery, which took up the entire Eastern side of the city. So, but, uh, but nonetheless, well, it's been excellent having Jaime and John with us and Kevin and I want to thank you for joining us today. And especially all of you as our guests who were listening in uh, and all these great questions. There, there was some really good questions today. I think you guys uh, stirred some thought. Next month, we'll be discussing third stage separators delivering FCC particulate stack emissions compliance and don't let dirty air slow you down. That sounds like an interesting topic, doesn't it, Kevin? Yeah, go ahead and please register for that next uh, next podcast. Do it as soon as possible uh, and let us know, like, John, like uh, Doug said, let us know what, what other topics you have for us. Absolutely. So until next month, keep it running down the track and we'll see you next time you're in for your next pit stop.